Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Welcome, everyone. This is our very special Zazen Kai, live from Scuba, Japan, Colorado. We have people uh, sitting with us in um, the UK, in Spain, Canada, the United States. And uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce um, someone who's been a well-known name around uh, Tree Leaf uh, very recently, as we've been going through uh, his book, David Loy. Mm. David, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Jindo, for this invitation. I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, D- David is a teacher with the uh, Sambo Kyodan lineage, but he is also on the cutting edge. Uh, I would put him right up there with the likes of uh, folks like Stephen Batchelor, for example, who are trying to make a modern statement of our very ancient ways. Uh, to preserve the best and to bring the future into clarity for us. Uh, Without him, I think uh, we would be rather aimless in the Buddhist world. And he's a voice that is keeping a lot of people in a very good direction of where we go from here. Uh, David, your books um, are cherished. My favorite is, personal favorite is the world is made of uh, stories. but uh, A New Buddhist Path is a book we've been going through uh, recently, uh, the last few months, and uh, several of the people here have appreciated that very much. So without very uh, much ado, David, just a, a few words uh, from you before we sit some zazen. Just say hi. Happy to say hi, and, and as I said, delighted to be with you folks, uh, and d- delighted to be in touch, in particular, people who share these same concerns. I mean, we have this wonderful tradition, but we also need to engage in this conversation with modernity and really determine, you know, what, what's living, what's going to be most uh, liberative for us today, and what's historically and cultural, culturally conditioned in ways that we can and maybe need to let go of. I'd like to mention your big current project. I know you have so many projects, but your big project is the Echo Bodhisattva and the Echo Retreat Center. Could you tell us a little bit what that's about? Sure. Well, there are actually two big projects at the moment, in addition to the travels. Uh, I'm I'm writing a book on Ecodharma, which will be published uh, next year by Wisdom, Wisdom Publications. But the big local issue is... Uh, I'm, I'm one of a group of Dharma teachers who are uh, founding an, an eco-Dharma center uh, in the Rocky Mountains, about half an hour from North Boulder. Um, we have found a, an extraordinary uh, piece of land, 180 pristine acres of river, meadows, forests, and a lodge that can sleep up to 30 people. So what we're doing is we're in the process of buying this, and it'll also need quite a bit of up, upgrading in order to provide the facilities we need. But the basic idea 
is that it will be an eco-dharma center, which to my mind means it'll include opportunities for meditation in nature and even sort of wilderness solo retreats if people want to do that. Uh, also, we're going to have plenty of opportunity for discussions of the sort that I'll, topics that I'll be bringing up in my talk soon here. And, and also opportunities for Buddhists and others to get together and just talk about, okay, what does it mean to be a bodhisattva or an ecosattva today? How do we, how do we best express these concerns given the kind of situation that we face today? So I'm very excited about it. Uh, things are going really well. Uh, a lot of issues with the Boulder County Planning Board and so forth. Uh, I guess the one thing that's been a bit disappointing, it's, it's hard to raise money, even though the amount we need is quite small, to at least to get started. But uh, I guess times are tight. So if anyone has any piles of cash in a corner that you don't know what to do with, uh, let me know. In any case, please check out this website. We have this website, Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center, or RE. Anyways, also <laughs> Rocky. I, I, put, I put up the link already. Thank you. Okay, check it out. There's a little video in there. shows us shows people a bit more what what's going on. And if if anyone wants to follow up, feel free to uh, contact me uh, about that. But we're excited. If all goes well, we're going to be start well. I'm going to be probably co-teaching a retreat there this summer, but it's next year that we'll really get into the full, full fling of things, full schedules, and a lot of different teachers. It'll be available to a lot of different teachers from different traditions. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, I, I don't know if our group is going to put you uh, over the top, but I, I think the, the folks here will certainly do a little something. And uh, maybe in uh, years, uh, some years to come, we can look forward to, to sitting there mm -hmm. uh, at your place. The other thing worth mentioning very briefly is that uh, our vision is to make this available as, as a very inexpensive place to go. As we all know, a lot of retreat centers can be quite pricey. And uh, basically, if things go the way we hope, it's going to be very inexpensive. And in fact, there'll be lots of scholarship money for those who can't otherwise afford to come at all. So that's something else we're very excited about. So it sounds, it sounds uh, wonderful. And uh, well, uh, our uh, Zazen here is uh, also uh, trying to do things a new way. Uh, we're all going to be sitting uh, now in, uh, let's say, th three different continents at once uh, while we're sitting. So uh, Shingen, our, uh, our Eno is uh, in Canada. Would you uh, ring the bell and get us started? David, maybe you could just sit where, we are, where you are and we'll get ready to go. Okay. <laughs> further ado, I'll just turn uh, things over to David and thank him again for being here. And thank you again to all of you for this invitation and this opportunity. Yeah. Um, as many of you know, my, my main concern and interest is uh, Buddhism in the modern world or the contemporary world, the, the conversation 
between the Asian Buddhist traditions and our modern or postmodern condition. Um, and more and more over the years, this has focused kind of quite naturally on um, social engagement. Uh, because this is something that I think is, 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 is not only important, but there's something implicit or there's a potentiality in Buddhism that couldn't be developed in the various Asian cultures, none of which was democratic. Um, but uh, it really becomes more and more essential in the modern world, given the kinds of challenges that we face today. And uh, in addition to that, in the last few years, naturally, the, the concern about social engagement has tended to focus more and more on eco-dharma, this new term that has to do with the relationship between uh, Buddhist teachings and the ecological crisis. Let me just do a quick reality check here. I, I plugged in my uh, earbuds. Can everybody hear okay? Is there any problem? If anyone has a problem, let me know. Great. Thank you. And if a problem develops, please let me know. Um, what I'd like to do is offer um, a talk about two icebergs, uh, not real icebergs. They don't have anything to do with what seems to be happening off the coast of Greenland or South America, South, uh, well, the, the Antarctic. Uh, but understanding these two icebergs as, as metaphors, taking advantage of the well-known fact that only about a, a fifth of the iceberg is visible above the water, but that uh, the rest is submerged below and actually holding up the part that we, that we do see. The first iceberg that I want to talk about is our situation today, uh, including ecology, but not only that. And starting from the tip, uh, climate change, right? So we had this big climate change march yesterday here in Boulder, or Dar uh, Denver rather, as well as in Washington. In fact, uh, curiously, we had a snowstorm yesterday, but a lot of us uh, went up to Denver anyway. Um, and it went very well. But, well, most of us here, I think, already know quite a bit about climate change. So I don't want to bore or spend our time repeating stuff you already know, except to make three quick points. Number one, it seems to be the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced. Number two, what's really interesting about it is that it's not something that's happening to us. It's something that we are doing to ourselves. That is to say, we can't blame it on asteroids or mega volcanic eruptions. It's, it's something that our species is responsible for. And of course, some people are a lot more responsible than others, but nonetheless, as a species, we can't blame, blame anything else. Um, I remember Pogo back in the Vietnam War saying, um, we have met the enemy and it is us. Um, imagine how we would respond if some alien spaceships came down and started pumping methane into the atmosphere, how quickly we would, I think, unite as a now global civilization to respond to that, to fight against that. But because we're doing it to ourselves, because as we know, some people are benefiting quite a bit from, from it, it's much harder to respond. And that brings me to the third point, which is simply that, uh, Although what we are doing in, in, in combating or trying to resolve climate change, although it's not 
negligible, it's certainly far from sufficient, according to what the climate scientists are, are telling us. And it raises, therefore, the interesting question, why? Why don't we seem to be able to mobilize to, to, to respond adequately? Uh, but here's my first real point. Those three main things that I just said about climate change uh, apply just as well to a much larger ecological crisis. Hmm? We tend to focus, and to a large extent, we need to focus on the ecological crisis, but, uh, or sorry, on the climate change, but nonetheless, um, it's really just the tip, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, for example, just looking at the oceans, um, yes, um, increasing carbon in the atmosphere is warming the oceans, the carbon gets into the oceans, it acidifies them and so forth. This causes problems with coral reefs, um, makes it difficult for tiny uh, photoplankton and so forth to sort of form their shells, et cetera, et cetera. But there's lots of other things going on with the oceans that we can't really blame on climate change. The fact that virtually all of, of the major fishing grounds are fished, uh, fished to capacity or, or rapidly declining. In fact, it's predicted by the year um, 2048 that uh, the oceans will be commercially extinct. And if we eat fish after that, it'll have to be grown in ponds or something like that. Um, also the problem of plastic, other people have predicted that by the year 2050, um, there'll be more plastic in the oceans than fish. Um, we, you know, we've only had plastic about a hundred years, but since the 1950s, about a billion tons has been discarded and a fair amount of that has ended up in the ocean. So we have the great Pacific garbage patch and North Atlantic garbage patch and so forth. And plastic doesn't degrade. It'll break up into smaller pieces and it's often ingested by fish, uh, but it's there. It's changing the chemical composition of the oceans. And then we can add things like eutrophication. Uh, the fact that you, you get all these chemicals flushed out down rivers into bays and creating dead zones that can be several thousand square miles, such as uh, at the bottom of the Mississippi and so forth and so on. I mean, what I, basically what I'm trying to say here, yes, we have to focus on climate change, but nonetheless, there's a larger ecological crisis, which includes a lot of other things that we could really go into, but rather than bend people's ears for too long here, let me just mention one that I think is especially relevant uh, for, for Buddhists, for Zen Buddhists who take vows to save all sentient beings, right? The truth is we're, we're now well into what scientists are calling the sixth extinction event. Uh, a very large percentage of the Earth's plant and animal species are going extinct. In fact, E.O. Wilson, the renowned Harvard biologist, has predicted that you know by the end of the century, uh, about half of all the plant and animal species could be extinct or will be so weakened that they will go extinct soon thereafter. You know? That's a pretty heavy duty phenomenon to think about, again, from a Buddhist perspective. What does that really mean? What, is that, what does that really imply? Um, and, and what I think it points to, I mean, we could go on and on. There's a lot of other issues here with, well, you're in scuba, so you're not that far away from Fukushima, right? We think about the nuclear disasters. The truth is, 
it's been, what, uh, five years, six years now since uh, the Fukushima meltdown. And the truth is, they don't really have a handle on it. They don't know where the spent fuel is. There's still massive amounts of radioactive water being produced. And the prediction is that it'll take 20 to 30 years to clean up that mess, right? So, you know, we can talk about that. We can talk about the fact that the world's 400 plus nuclear reactors produce about 30,000 tons of nuclear waste every year that basically we don't know what to do with, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we can really go on here, but my, my basic point is rather than simply thinking of climate change as something that'll be resolved if we can just shift to renewable resources of energy, um, what we really have is something greater, some, a greater challenge, which in fact, I would say points to what, what's below the surface of the iceberg, right? The tip climate change, then the ecological crisis. But really what's going on, what I think this all points to is, is a larger kind of civilizational crisis you know, that, that despite the kind of lifestyles most of us, many of us enjoy today, uh, at least the people who are likely to be listening to this, um, despite all the kinds of technological developments that are happening so quickly, nonetheless, we do seem to be a civilization that's lost its way and has, it is self-destructing. You know, that there's something, you know, or l let me try putting it this way. If, a, if that spaceship I mentioned earlier was just observing us, um, not listening to what we said, but just observed what the human species does on the earth, I think what it would conclude is that the meaning of human civilization, the greatest value, the thing that's more, most important to us is ever-expanding economic and technological development, economic growth and consumption. You know, that that's the meaning of what it be, means to be human in this kind of civilization. And the fundamental problem, as I think we all know, is that that system the kind of economic system that we have that has to keep growing if it's not going to collapse, that's basically incompatible with the other system, the biosphere. And the truth is only one of those two systems can be changed and, it, and it's not the natural world. So this, this is the kind of squeeze that, that we seem to be in now. Um, don't, don't worry, I'm getting to Buddhism here, but, but I just want to, because the real issue is, you know, what is Buddhism, how does Buddhism interact with this? What does this mean for Buddhism? What does Buddhism have to offer that can help us understand this? But before going into that, let me just mention, I think, one particularly interest, interesting or, or relevant example of, of the problem, which is the Japanese attitude to bluefin tuna. Uh, as many of us know, Japanese love sashimi and sushi, and the favorite by far is bluefin tuna, which also happens to be one of the world's most endangered large commercial fish. It's getting harder to find. They tend to be smaller. But uh, some Japanese companies, Mitsubishi in particular, has figured out a very clever way to res respond to this problem. Basically, what it's done is it, it's tried to buy up as much bluefin tuna uh, on the world market, both legally and illegally, because there are limits, and uh, kind of trying to corner the market and importing as much as it can into Japan and then freezing it in its massive minus 60 degree freezers, uh, more than 
is needed in any year, but the idea is that having these fish frozen, their, their value, which is already great, will become truly astronomical if, as is predicted, bluefin tuna soon become almost commercially extinct. Right? I, I don't know if you can see what I'm driving at here, but the idea is that, in a way, the solution, in one way, makes a lot of economic sense. Um, especially if you think about, um, how to put it, um, what's sometimes called the tragedy of the commons, right? That if Mitsubishi doesn't do it, somebody else probably will. But the basic issue here is that the response of Mitsubishi is, Mitsubishi is short-sighted in the sense that it's seeing the problem as aggravating the problem, which I think is, 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 not that, is not that uncommon. You know, it's like as, as resources diminish, the emphasis on short-term profitability tends to keep people thinking like that. And I think but what it really points to is one way of formulating the fundamental problem with any civilization with any economy that understands the natural world as a means to something else that is willing to use and abuse the natural world in order to maximize something else, which in this case is, is profitability. And the reason I go into this is I think this, depending on how we understand it, sort of points better than almost anything else I know to a kind of internal self-contradiction or, or craziness. Um, especially when we realize that the money that is profit uh, in and of itself is a nothing, right? It's like money is our social construction. Those, those pieces of paper in your pocket or those numbers in your digital bank accounts in and of themselves, they have no value whatsoever, right? You can't eat those pieces of paper or ride in them or sleep under them, but they're still the most valuable thing of all because they are how we define value. We have this social, legally enforced agreement uh, that we can exchange them for almost anything we want. Uh, and inevitably, therefore, what tends to happen is that um, money attains a kind of a symbol symbolic value. Um, it's not just something that we use for exchange, but since we unreflectively tend to think of the satisfaction of all of our desires as happiness, um, I think money comes to symbolize the possibility of happiness. You know, As Schopenhauer put it, I think uh, money is abstract happiness. Therefore, people who can't fully enjoy uh, concrete happiness, they, they, they tend to go for money, which I think helps us understand why it is that uh, people who already have much more than they can possibly use billionaires while they're still obsessed with making a lot more. It's the symbolic, symbolic value. But, but here's the main point. Okay. This is the fundamental contradiction of our civilization. As I see it, when we remember that the true wealth is, is not pieces of paper or numbers and bank accounts, but that the true wealth of this planet is in its healthy biosphere, right? In oceans teeming with sea life and uh, mountains and forests, likewise teeming with plant and animal life and clean rivers 
clean oceans, clean air, et cetera, et cetera. When we remember that that's true wealth, and then we remember that money is nothing in itself, we're in this strange paradoxical situation that the kind of civilization we have is in the process of sacrificing everything of real value that is of real wealth in order to maximize something that in and of itself has no value whatsoever. Of course, we can translate that no value whatsoever into anything as long as there's still something left to translate it into. But that's, that's the kind of fundamental irony that, again, the natural world for us, and again, this is, this is, the world isn't just the place where we happen to live, right? The earth is our mother. And um, despite fantasies of terraforming Mars and so forth, there's an umbilical cord that, that, we, that, that we can't cut. And in that sense, the relationship is even more intimate. And yet, because we feel separate from the earth, you know, we're able to abuse it in this way. There's this kind of a, of a contradiction. Um, Does that make any sense? Is that cl clicking with anybody? Yeah. Um, when we look at it from that standpoint, I think it supports what I was mentioning earlier that what we have isn't just a climate change problem or even an ecological problem. I think we have a more fundamental problem with the direction of our civilization, a civilization that's lost its way, a civilization that somehow it, it, it's got a very strange misunderstanding of, of, of what's important, of what it means to be a human, where, where we don't know what else to do. Um, and so we're, we're kind of trapped. I wonder if anybody here read uh, the, the new book called Sapiens by Harari. Is anybody familiar with it? Yeah, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, what I want to do is, let me just read you the last few sentences from that book. The book that I'm talking about is um, by an Israeli historian named Harari, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And so let me just read these last few sentences of the whole book, his kind of conclusion. Despite the astonishing things that humans are capable of doing, we remain unsure of our goals and we seem to be as discontented as ever. We've advanced from canoes to sailboats to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. We're more powerful than ever before, but have very little idea what to do with that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods, we are accountable to no one. We're consequently wrecking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. And he concludes his last sentence of all. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what we want, who don't know what they want? The argument that I've made a lot about our individual predicament, how the delusion of a separate self inside, separate from other people and the rest of the world outside. What I've argued is that this 
supposedly separate self inside is a construction that's inherently uncomfortable. It always feels insecure because there's nothing there that could be secured. And we normally, I think it, we experience that. We experience it as a sense of lack, as the sense that something is wrong with me, something is missing. Uh, I'm not good enough. Uh, and I think we can see how that fits into or how that works as a kind of description about what Buddhism is talking about. What I think it's also important to see is that this problem with sense of separation is something that applies not only individually, but collectively, that we now, as a civilization, have this sense of separation. And as Harari, I think, summarizes very nicely, the sense of separation that we do have is also haunted by a collective sense of lack, right? What's it all about? Where are we going? What's the meaning of it all? Uh, and, and that's the sense, I think, in which uh, our civilization is in crisis in the sense that what we've been doing up to now is, is going in a certain kind of direction, and we're at the point where we can't go on that way indefinitely. Uh, that's what the ecological crisis signifies. And the question is, therefore, okay, what do we do? What are the alternatives? And what does Buddhism have to say about all this? Okay. It's about time I start talking about Buddhism. Um, and that's the second iceberg, because I believe that the, it's not simply that we have an ecological crisis or a, even a civilizational crisis. I think it's, this is also a crisis for the Buddhist traditions, which are thereby challenged to clarify their essential message if they're going to be as liberative as we need them to be right now, right? Um, so I would say that, you know, one way to kind of sum that up is, is to talk about a Buddhist iceberg. Um, at the very top, at the very tip of which is what's now being called eco-dharma, right? Uh, Buddhist concern for climate change and uh, the ecological crisis. And it's, it's encouraging or gratifying that in the last maybe four years, there's been a real increase or even explosion of interest in eco-dharma. It's like Buddhists really seem to be waking up to this in a way that they weren't before. And that raises the question, you know. Um, the, the ecological crisis has been front page news since the 60s, right? Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published in the 60s. It led to the uh, founding of the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And then in the 80s, you had James Hansen's uh, high-profile testimony to Congress about climate change. Uh, in 92, you had the, the Earth Summit in Rio when, you know, things really got big. Um, so my question is, why has it taken Buddhists so long to come on board here? Because it really has, you know. In the last 10 years plus, I have uh, offered a lot of workshops on social engagement and eco-dharma. And quite a few of those were canceled or should have been canceled because so few people signed up. It's only in the last few years that attention is really growing very quickly. And even then, especially among dharma teachers, even now, dharma teachers who are very concerned about the ecological crisis 
they tend to report the same thing, that when they're going to give a talk next week on Buddhism and ecology, or Buddhism and eco-dharma, their experience is that fewer people show up, and sometimes far fewer people show up, which is, is, is quite striking. Um, what's going on there? Is there some... Is, is, is there something in Buddhism itself that encourages indifference or even resistance to, to going there, to, to addressing this problem? Is it just that we're all despairing, or, or is there something else? Um, if if, if Ecodharma is the very tip of the Buddhist iceberg, below that, we could talk more generally about social engagement. Um, and, and I think we see some of the same problem. Um, with, with the Great Recession of, of 2008, which many or most people still haven't really recovered from, um, that was a real blow to what were the two biggest socially engaged Buddhist organizations in the U.S. at that time. So we had the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in California, Bernie Glassman is in Peacemakers in Mass, based in Massachusetts, and both of them basically collapsed for lack of financial support. Uh, there were some financial, I mean, they, they weren't always managed maybe in the best possible way, but nonetheless, they've had a lot of trouble attracting people who, who, who want to support their, their mission. They struggle along. In fact, I'm amazed how, how well, how, how much they're still able to do, but the resources they have are much, much less. At the same time as you have what seems to be there's still quite a bit of money available for certain types of uh, meditation centers. Uh, I'm thinking something like Spirit Rock in Northern California, right? Marin County, north of San Francisco, where they were successfully able to raise millions and millions of dollars for this massive expansion. So meditation centers, some of the high profile ones, maybe the ones near Silicon Valley, they're still able to raise a lot of money for uh, individual meditation retreats. But the money doesn't seem to be there for social engagement. And so uh, part of the contrast I want to draw is the, the relatively small interest in social engagement and the much larger interest that's still growing in the actual meditation practice. In some ways, I think that socially engaged Buddhism may actually be a victim of its own success in the sense that I think it's now widely accepted that service, individuals helping individuals, helping homeless people, uh, prison dharma, hospice work, and so forth, I think it's widely accepted that that can be a part, maybe even an important part of our path, of our practice. Um, But we have a much greater problem addressing what might be called social dukkha, institutionalized dukkha, uh, the suffering created by the way society is structured. To say it a different way, I think we've gotten a lot better at pulling drowning, drowning people out of the river, but we're not much better at all in asking why there are so many more drowning people in the river, right? I mean... As of last year, there were well over a million school children. What was it? 1.6 million, 1.7 million school children who were homeless. 
These are homeless kids going to school. They have nowhere to live. You know, they're on the street or in short-term shelters. Uh, you know, Buddhists, I think, are doing... There's wonderful stuff going on with prison dharma, right? Going into prisons, uh, helping uh, individual inmates find the path, follow the path. But, you know, we also have this larger problem. We have absolutely horrible um, criminal justice system. Uh, we have enormous numbers of, of people in, in prison for nonviolent crimes. Um, and surprise, surprise, a very large portion of them are people of color, especially African-Americans and, and Latinos. So, you know, how do we address these problems? I'm reminded of something the Brazilian uh, Archbishop uh, Dom Helder Camara once famously said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why there are so many poor, they call me a communist. I wonder if there's a Buddhist version of that. You know, when we help homeless people, uh, we're called bodhisattvas. But when we want to ask these larger issues about why there are so many more homeless, what, it is a, what is it about the way that our society is structured that allows that kind of homelessness or, or, or so many people rotting in prison, you know, when we want to go there, then a lot of, uh, then a lot of other Buddhists say, Oh, you know, don't bring in your lefty principles there. That has nothing to do with Buddhism, you know, despite the fact that we're talking about a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering. The point being here that suffering isn't something that we can understand as it has been understood in the Asian traditions as, you know, very individually, it's my karma, my mind, and it's all, everything happens is, is, is my responsibility. In the modern world, we're so much aware of social forces, institutions, structures, the way that history can, can actually uh, cause dukkha, cause suffering. Uh, in one way, I can understand why we Buddhists are a bit reluctant to go there, because especially in our Zen practice, right, there's so much emphasis on immediacy, on um, letting go of concepts so that we can actually experience what it is so if, if I walk around the corner and I see a suffering homeless person, you know, where our practice encourages us to engage in an unmediated way with that person. But of course, it's much, much more difficult to bring this kind of practice to find ways to address the larger sources of, of dukkha suffering, the institutional, the institutional ones there. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, at the same time as all this is happening, I'm talking about the tip of the Buddhist iceberg, right? Uh, Ecodharma, social engagement. At the same time, still very much above the surface of the water, we've had this huge explosion of interest in something else, maybe not strictly speaking Buddhism, but certainly Buddhist-influenced, Buddhist-motivated uh, originally. And of course, I'm thinking about the, the mindfulness movement, Right very controversial in the Buddhist world, and that's not something I want to get into here in any detail, except to uh, say, number one, I think in most cases, it's very, very helpful to people. But number two, there are also dangers here, such as Bhikkhu Bodhi has identified, where, you know, he says how, uh, ab I think this is quoting him pretty clearly, absent a sharp social critique, Buddhism can easily be used to sort of rationalize our economic system, rationalize, uh, uh, normalize, um, 
our preoccupation with economic growth and, and consumption. In other words, if we're not careful, Buddhism could be used to justify the, the first iceberg, just sort of helping us fit in. Or, and I think it's, it's even true, more true for mind, something like the mindfulness movement, insofar as it might be used in the corporate world to encourage efficiency to help people cope better with the very difficult jobs uh, rather than hire as many people as needed. Let's just send people on a mindfulness cope course so they can cope better so that they can be more efficient and our company can be more profitable and so forth. Right. Um, so anyway, notice the, notice the contrast between ecodharma and social engagement, very, very small and not only individual focus meditation and so forth, but the larger mindfulness movement. My question is, what is it? Is, is, is there something inherent within Buddhist teachings that in, encourages that, that encourages us to be, become preoccupied on, on the individual level rather than get involved in the concern for social justice that's been such an important part of the um, such an important part of the Abrahamic traditions, Judeo-Christianity, for example. Yeah. And that brings us to what's below the iceberg. And, and um, because I, I, I do think there's something there in the tradition that we have to be careful of. And for those of you who've read New Buddhist Path, it's something that I elaborate in the first part of that book. Um, I quote a... Uh, a scholar named Loyal Wu, who wrote quite a fine book called Everybody's Story, uh, in which he says basically that in the future, uh, axial age traditions, and that means traditions that developed around the time of the Buddha, including Buddhism, including the Abrahamic Judeo-Christianity and so forth. He says traditions like Buddhism and Christianity, in the future, they're going to become less and less relevant because they don't have what it takes in order to engage with the kinds of social and ecological problems that we face today. That's basically what he says. So in his opinion, something like Buddhism is going to become less important. And the two things that he especially identifies are uh, cosmological dualism and individual salvation. And I think the question for us Buddhists is, number one, first of all, how the heck do we understand that? But also, if that's really problematic, what is the role? Uh, what does this mean for how we understand Buddhism today and how it is that Buddhism can really engage with the kind of problems that we have today? Um, so again, let me just say a few words about uh, cosmological dualism and individual salvation. Cosmological dualism is simply the idea that there's some other reality, some transcendent or higher reality, right? This is kind of obvious in popular Christianity, for example, where the idea is um, God created this world and the goal is to, if, if we behave ourselves uh, after we die, we can spend an eternity with God in heaven. So that's the kind of higher, higher reality there. We may wonder, well, is that something also in Buddhism? And, and I think it is. Certainly, this is obvious in the Pali Canon and the way that the Theravada tend to understand the path. You know, 
it's interesting when when you really read the Pali Canon carefully and try to sort out what it says about nibbana or nirvana. It's not easy. Most of the descriptions are vague metaphors like the refuge, the harbor. A lot of the rest are sort of negative. It's nibbana is the end of dukkha, the end of suffering, the end of craving, the end of delusion, and so forth. But nonetheless, it's 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 very clear that there is something that transcends this world. Um, and the ultimate goal, of course, in the Pali Canon is not to be reborn into this realm of samsara. This is the world of craving and suffering, and you basically don't want to come back here. If you can realize, if you can a attain something that will keep you from automatically coming back here. Okay. Well, we may be familiar with that, but maybe what we're less sensitive to is the fact that what we emphasize in the Zen tradition realizing the emptiness of phenomena, that emptiness can serve some of the same function, right? Depending on how we understand and how we experience emptiness, emptiness can, in effect, be function as something transcendent in the sense that, in the sense that it removes us from engagement with this world, right? Now, the, now the, the, the issue of emptiness or shunyata or ku, that's, that's a huge issue that I'm not going to... Um, uh, spend much time with, but I think the one important thing that does need to be said is that we can cling to emptiness, and in terms of our practice, we can become so identified with the kind of serenity or peace of mind that we feel when we're on the cushion that, 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 that we see that as the goal of our practice, you see, the serenity from the meditation and that whatever awakening, whatever kensho or so that we have can actually deepen that serenity. And so we can understand emptiness as, as, as a kind of place to, to, to hang out. Um, my, I think that's a misunderstanding. I, I think emptiness is better understood as kind of like an unlimited potentiality that therefore um, it, it, it's not a place to stick to, but rather by, by realizing emptiness, uh, it, 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 it enables the forms that emptiness takes to be more wise and compassionate. In other words, I think that there's a kind of tendency, that, there's a kind of dynamic built into the emptiness, and I know talking about emptiness in this way is opening a can of worms, but, but there's a kind of dynamic built into it so that as we become more open to it, as, as we open up to it, as we um, experience it more deeply with a kensho or something, what, what happens is that this emptiness really wants to manifest, wants to presence in compassionate ways. It's not something that we simply reside into, but that it is something that tends to spring forth in this way, right? I remember my teacher, Yamada Kowen in Kamakura, you know, saying that a, a genuine kensho in, in his experience is always accompanied by compassion. Compassion spontaneously arises at, at the same time. So again, the emptiness is not something that enables us to withdraw from the phenomenal world or, you know, this, this consensus reality, the social reality. Or, or, or what's happening to the earth, but in fact, it, it provides a, a grounding that 
can lead to a more compassionate and wise engagement with it. That that's kind of like that's basically what I'm what I'm trying to point to there. Uh, I hope that makes some sense. I'm kind of stumbling around here. Um, so that's the sense in which there's a danger of a kind of a cosmological dualism even in our even in our Zen practice. Um, the other issue that Loyal Rue talks about is individual salvation, which is in its own way quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, in the Christian tradition, um, there, there's something a bit odd about that, right? It's like in the Christian tradition, um, yeah, we go to heaven one by one, and in heaven we're supposed to be blissful because we're there with God. Um, I wonder what it would be like for the mother of young children who maybe say dies horribly in an automobile accident. Suddenly she's, she's, she's lived a good life. She's lived morally. She goes up to heaven and suddenly she's in the pearly gates with God or whatever. But in the meantime, the young children and the husband that she loves so dearly, I mean, is she really going to be blissful up there without them? You know, that, that, that seems to, that whole way of thinking seems to reinforce a kind of, individualism or separate self that I think Buddhism challenges the idea, the idea being that it, it's not simply that we have relationships, but there, but there's a, a, a deeper sense and Indra's web sense in what we are is these webs of relationships. And so the idea that she would sort of go up to heaven and sort of forget, you know, she's freed from earthly entanglements. She doesn't have to think about her kids or wife, husband anymore. Well, there's something a little strange there, right? But it's something comparable in Buddhism. Again, we have individual salvation, don't we? Both in, um, in the Pali Canon, people go to Nibbana one by one, uh, but also uh, in, enlightenment uh, is, is, is individual. That uh, that's the way that, that we tend to think about it, right? It's like in our practice, we go into the Zendo, and insofar as our main focus is waking up, it seems to involve disengagement from what other people are going through, both in terms of the other people in the Zendo, right? It's like, I can be enlightened, and, and, and that doesn't seem to be connected with anything that's going on with the other people in the Zendo, um, or social issues in the world or ecological issues in the world, that somehow I have found my peace of mind, my, which is, which is an individually, ultimately my fate, my ultimate well-being is dissociated from the ultimate well-being of all of you, of all of the other people in the world, and indeed of the biological systems that are uh, of the eco system of the biosphere. Does that make any sense? There is, I mean, there is something else that militates against that, isn't it? The idea of the bodhisattva, quite, and, that, and that's quite important. But the question is how we understand it, because traditionally, so often the bodhisattva is about um, still working individually, one-on-one -on -one service. It's like there's some person who's had some awakening, and the idea of the bodhisattva path is to help other individuals awaken. But we're in a situation now where, as I've been trying to say, we have to also think about ways to address the, the larger, the larger systemic issues. The other way to understand the bodhisattva path is, 
that it evolves naturally out of the realization of our non-separation or, or non-duality. That if the problem is the delusion of separation, the illusion of a separate self inside that's distinct from the rest of the world outside, one way to understand awakening is that we let go of ourselves and, and that, that, that sense of separation uh, starts to dissolve. And we realize that we're not disconnected from all other people, in which case, how can I be fully enlightened unless everyone else is too? I mean, if, if I'm not other than the world that I'm supposedly in, if I'm one, one of the many ways that this world, that the cosmos is manifesting or presencing, and you are too and everyone else is, insofar as I realize that, insofar as I realize my non-duality with this world, Inevitably, it seems to me, my, my well-being can no longer be completely dissociated from, from that, of, that of other people. So I think Loyal Rue's point does have some applicability to Buddhism, that there is something in the tradition that encourages uh, a certain kind of indifference. We're encouraged to focus on our own awakening traditionally. That's the way it's been understood. And also uh, in a way that sort of turn, turns us, historically ha has turned us away from the world. Um, in the modern world, however, um, the truth is, there's nothing in the scientific worldview that seems to support cosmological dualism, the idea of some transcendent dimension, whether that's a heaven with God or a pure land or a, or a, or a special realm of nibbana, disincarnate nibbana somehow. Um, so it's not surprising that what's happened in the modern world as Buddhism has come to the West, come, come to as Buddhism has globalized, it's, I think it's not surprising that there's been kind of a strong reaction to that. Because the truth of it is, I think that most of us, we don't really know about traditional doctrines. I mean, in a lot of ways, Buddhism seems very modern in terms of its emphasis on interdependence and deceptions of language and, and, and so forth. But when it comes to things like cosmological karma or or physical rebirth, or some other higher reality, we don't know. It's, 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 or at least we don't know to the point that we're not willing to pin our practice and our hopes and our goals onto, some, on, onto that kind of reality, right? I mean, I'm not willing to lead my life in the way that I do, thinking about what's going to make my next rebirth better, that, that's not something I, I think about. I, there may be rebirth, there may not be, but that's not my concern. So, or that's not my worry. Um, so I, I think it's understandable that largely in response to the cosmological dualism and so forth, um, what's happened in, say, Western Buddhism, certainly in the U.S., is what might be called psychologized Buddhism, where Buddhism is understood as... A, another form of psychotherapy, you know, that 
that has certain techniques that traditional psychotherapy doesn't, but that can also uh, basically help us deal with our mental issues, our mental, uh, our neuroses that deals with our greed, ill will, delusion, you know, right now. Um, uh, again, the idea is that uh, the problem with my life is the way my mind functions. And if I can change that, then my life will naturally improve because I'll be uh, a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better worker, that I'll kind of harmonize, that I'll fit into the world better. And, and uh, I mean, again, in many ways, I think the psychological dimension or the, psych the psychological perspective on Buddhism, what Buddhism uh, has to offer psychotherapy is really important. And in some ways, I think that's been the main sort of creative direction um, so far. That, that's been the main way that Buddhism has been interacting with, with the West. Um, but there's also the question, how, how much is something deep? How much is something else lost? How much is there something deeper that maybe psychologized Buddhism or um, mindfulness would, would be losing. But, but anyway, here, here's what I'm trying to get at. And those of you who've read the first part of New Buddhist Path will, will be somewhat familiar with this. The idea is that, um, on the one hand, the kind of cosmological dualism of something like Theravada or the Pali Canon that kind of classical dualism is, is one extreme and another extreme would be a kind of psychologized Buddhism where it's just about cleaning up our mental life so that we fit better into the world. Uh, in one ways, those understandings are diametrically opposed, aren't they? And yet in another way, they are, um, how to say it, they, they share the same perspective on the world in the sense that they tend to accept it as it is. Uh, whether you want to escape from this world by transcending it or just fit into it, in neither case is there concern about what might be called social dukkha or ecological dukkha. You know, for the Theravada tradition and the Pali Canon, this world is samsara, the world is suffering, craving, delusion. You can't really fix it. So the idea is to check out of here, to transcend it, to escape it. With psychologized Buddhism, there's a tendency to think where the problems in my life are due to my own mind and just clean that up and everything will be okay. And if I think that there's a problem in the world, ah, well, that's because I'm projecting some deep dissatisfaction within myself. So both of these understandings basically tend to distract us from concern about the world, whether we're trying to escape this world classically or we're simply trying to fit into it, neither one of them encourages the kind of social engagement and ecological engagement that has really, really become, become necessary. Um, does that make sense? See, I'm, I'm talking about all this as, as, as the deeper part of the iceberg. I'm saying there's a reason why we Buddhists, I think, have been slow to become ecologically concerned. There's a reason why social engagement is still relatively small, that uh, it, it's not getting a lot of support. And there's a reason why mindfulness and individual practice are going so well. And once we look below the surface of the iceberg, we can see 
that Buddhism, like other traditions of that time, uh, can be caught up in a kind of cosmological dualism and preoccupation with our own individual salvation and basically the social and ecological challenges that we face now are also a challenge to that way of understanding buddhism they really ask us okay is okay we really need to discriminate what's still liberative what's powerful about that what we don't want to let go but we also want to find what it is within the buddhist traditions that can really offer us perspectives and help us engage you know help us really engage engage with the world because we let me say it this way um both understanding buddhism uh in terms of escaping this world, whether we transcend it or simply go inside and dwell in emptiness, that, that way of understanding and then the psychologized kind of Buddhism that I think is quite, quite popular. And, and you know, th there's a lot of value to that too. But both of those, I think, encourage what might be called our own distinctively Buddhist way of resolving the ecological crisis. Now, I'm being a little facetious here, but I think that we, we, we Buddhists, we have our own way of responding and, and resolving it. Uh, that is to say, when, for example, we read the morning news and we read yet again that scientists are startled to find that the icebergs are melting even more quickly than expected or the Greenland ice shelf or whatever. As we read these things, most of us tend to become somewhat disturbed. There's some uh, anxiety, maybe depression. It encourages us in some way to despair. But here's the point. Hey, we're Buddhists. We know how to deal with those kinds of mental states. So when we read the news, we get depressed, we get concerned. What do we do? Well, hey, we go, we face the wall, we meditate for half an hour or 45 minutes, and we get up and we feel better. Oh, it's great. You know, I've let all that go. I've let go of those kinds of concerns because those concerns are just particular ways of thinking and feeling and acting, right? And in the process of letting them go, then I'm getting back to the emptiness and I can ignore that kind of thing. So, you know, in our own way, personal way, we've resolved the ecological crisis, at least insofar as it pertains to me individually, right? Um, for the time being. And that's the fundamental problem that, uh, that's not a real resolution, but there's something in our tradition that encourages us to do it. And I just want to end with one further point, which there's no time to go into here, but I've talked a lot about it in other places, is there's another way of understanding the Buddhist path, right? The Buddhist path isn't about transcending this world. It isn't just about fitting into it, but it's realizing that the way we experience the world, including ourselves, is a psychological and social construction. And the path, the Buddhist path, is about deconstructing and reconstructing that world, including ourselves. So the deconstruction is what's happening when we're meditating, right? Um, insofar as the sense of self has to do with the way that mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and so forth work together to... Um, create and sustain this sense of separate self, when we're meditating, we're letting them go. Uh, we're not responding to them. And in a way, the sense of self deconstructs 
as, as that's happening. Um, likewise, I think that reconstruction, the kind of reconstruction is what happens in daily life when we learn to transform our motivations. As long as our fundamental motivations are greed, ill will, delusion, we're going to be experiencing the world in a, in a problematic way, in a way that's going to cause problems for us and for other people. And the whole point, I think, of the Buddha's emphasis on intention and motivation in creating karma is based on the realization that by transforming our motivations, we can actually come to experience ourselves and the world in a different way. And here, my, my last comment, and I think I've gone on too long here, uh, when we realize that the path is really about deconstructing and reconstructing how we experience ourselves in the world, then we can also see that the challenge of social dukkha, institutionalized dukkha, ecological dukkha suffering, that that is really the same kind of issue, that it's not the case that it's sufficient for us to deconstruct, reconstruct ourselves, but we also have a civilization, an economic system, a political system that also needs to be reconstructed, and that the path today involves, I think, seeing the connections between the two of those, realizing that engaging in that larger reconstruction is not a distraction from our personal transformation, but in fact, it's more and more becoming an essential part of it. So maybe I can leave it at that. Did that make any sense? I've kind of stumbled through it. Thank you so much, uh, David. It's like uh, Al Gore's message. It's not easy to hear, but it's important that we listen. And uh, thank you so much. I, I do want to uh, make sure we get, uh, we have questions coming in from people. I do want to make sure you can stick around just a little bit because yeah. I have uh, uh, folks at home, um, you can drop me a question at uh, my email, Jundo Treeleaf, and I'll try to get as many to David as possible. Folks uh, here live with us, uh, you have a question, raise your hand. There you go, Shingen. First of all, David, thank you. What an amazing talk. I really enjoyed that. Good. Well, thank you. One of the things for me is I wonder if I'm just going to kind of span over this kind of um, – this ecological engagement and the social engagement and from a Buddhist perspective is I wonder, cause I know for me, sometimes I struggle with this is that if you look at one of the 10 fundamental precepts is that we should not um, uh, unconstructively criticize the errors of others and judge others. And I wonder if that can kind of create a barrier for us in a way that it's much easier to help somebody when we see that they need help, like say somebody that is, homeless and hungry on the street, it's much easier to engage and to help them as it is to then stand up and give criticism and judgment to the system that perpetuates that form of suffering. And right. so I'm wondering, your, kind of your perspective, I wonder if, if some of our morals or our values that we take on as Buddhists that can also be um, obstacles to, to our practice and to this kind of engagement. What do you yeah. think about that? Um, so by, by criticizing, you, you think that we're, we're, we're breaking the precept? Is that? Well, in a way, like, I think it's good to, to have criticism, but to, right. I think in some ways, like yeah. the, the precepts talk about, uh, yeah. unconstructive criticism. So I guess right. 
Right. I mean, I think one of the ways that that plays out is, um, you know, so much um, activism sort of falls falls in, into the. It, it, it tends to dualize us from other people, doesn't it? We, we other people. It's like they're, they're the bad guys. They're the enemy. And in a way that follows quite simply, I think, again, in Judeo-Christianity, the important point is that good versus evil. And we, send, we tend to understand the issue in those terms. What's really interesting from a Buddhist standpoint, of course, is like, like Gandhi, too, did this. You know, he never othered the English. He, he treated them respectfully in the belief that they would eventually walk away peacefully, which which they did. The, the idea is that we accept, you know, we're all somewhere within this web of, of collective delusion. And, you know, one doesn't understand the enemy as someone to be defeated, but rather understands that there's problematic behavior here that nonetheless has to be addressed. So it can be done in a compassionate way. You know, what, what we really need to do is, create or, or have an activism that's motivated not by anger or hatred or fear, but motivated by love. And, you know, the, the love includes those that we're, as it were, fight, fighting against. Um, and that's why Buddhism also emphasizes things like nonviolence. So if, if that's the attitude, I think, with which we're engaging with other people, not, not, just rejecting them, then, then I think we avoid, we avoid that kind of a problem. We, we can't avoid the problem of, of criticism because we have systems, we have all these systems that are causing enormous amounts of suffering. And the traditional Asian Buddhist teachings didn't really go there. Maybe they couldn't given the autocratic you know, rulers they had, but I think we're in a situation now where we can't avoid going there. We really need, this is the growing tip for Buddhism, I think. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you, Dave. Let, let me uh, read a question from uh, Shoka, uh, who is writing from home. I think it's actually a two-part question. Hmm. Uh, do you think there is a large interest in meditation because it allows many to be concerned only about their enlightenment and spiritual path? Whereas engaged Buddhist practices ask us, ask us to look all around us and engage in a world that is broken. And that becomes overwhelming for people who want to, quote, feel better, unquote, which is why they came to meditation. And the second part is, and the big question that comes from that is, how do you help people want to be engaged and help others through suffering? How do you get, I, I think she's saying, how do you get people then to want to be engaged? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think we all come to this practice because there's, there's some kind of personal problem or dissatisfaction, you know. It's like, it, it, it may be simply some kind of existential anxiety, but it's going to be something very personal that's going to bring us to the cushion and inspire us or motivate us to spend so much time uh, cross-legged, all that kind of physical pain, all that time, all that energy, all that money. So in a way, we all start with ourselves. And I think that's, that's fine within the Buddhist tradition. That's the way Buddhism works. But, but the point is that as we, uh, as we practice, 
what we really begin to realize is that the fundamental problem we have isn't, uh, it's usually not what we thought it was, but it was something larger in the sense of our sense of separation, right? The delusion of self, as, as I as we as we sometimes call it, and, and so there there's there's a kind of an irony here that we, it's the suffering of the self that brings us to the practice. But as we begin to open up, as we begin to sort of let go of ourselves, then we realize more and more our non-duality with the world, and therefore, what goes along with that, I think, is a natural concern where one we don't dualize ourselves so much from what what other what other people are, are, are experiencing there. Um, now, I, was it my teacher who said, or, or, or maybe somebody else, that uh, in a way, um, this, this is a bad exchange. It's like before we just had our own problems, and now as we open up and as we take the bodhisattva path, in a way, the problems of the world become our problems. We don't discriminate in, in the way that, that we would have before. But there's also the sense that this practice gives us the kind of a grounding in, in a kind of a ironic way, a, a kind of groundless grounding, groundless grounding in the sense of what I think emptiness is pointing to or, or what it is how it is that we experience emptiness. But, but that grounding can give us a special kind of spiritual power, if you want to talk in those terms, a special kind of spiritual power that can enable us to engage in the world in a non-attached way. And, that's the, and, 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 and I think that's the power of the bodhisattva path. The bodhisattva has his or he, he or she still has this double path or two-sided path. They continue to work in themselves their own meditation, but they also know that it's not sufficient to do that. They also bring whatever equanimity, grounding, emptiness, they bring that into their engagement in the world in a non-attached way. And by non-attached, it means, well, it, it means a couple things. It means that um, we realize our commitment is not to a certain particular accomplishment. Uh, when I think about the, say, the bodhisattva vows, uh, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. We vow to do something impossible, literally impossible. It's, it's a goalless goal. And so what that really is pointing to is the idea that the bodhisattva vow is a way of crystallizing a kind of fundamental reorientation that happens as we practice. Whereas the old orientation is naturally self-preoccupied. What's in it for me? Through the practice, there's a kind of natural opening up, and then the way that takes form is this reorientation where the real question becomes, okay, uh, I'm part of this wonderful world, but there's also lots of dukkha here. Given who I am and my possibilities and situation, what can I do to make this place better for all of us? And the point being that there's no end to this process. It's just this fundamental reorientation that my well-being is, is intimately related to, my well-being is, is connected to my concern for your well-being and the world's well-being, that that kind of sense of separation doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And the biggest thing of all, I think, is that the don't-know mind that we emphasize in Buddhism 
um, enables us to act in a particular kind of way. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of one of my teachers, Robert Aiken, who said, um, our path isn't about clearing up the mystery, but making the mystery clear. That as, as we open up, it's not as though suddenly, ah, now everything comes clear, I understand, da, da. No, it's quite the opposite. We open up to a kind of fundamental mystery, a fundamental I don't knowness to the world, to the point where we don't really know what's happening fully, and we don't know what's possible, and we don't know what we do will do. So what I'm trying to say here is that our personal practice enables us to engage with the world in the following way, that we realize our task is to do the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do makes any difference whatsoever. And because of don't know mind, that's okay. That's, that's not only okay, we live that way joyously. Again, because it's rooted in the personal practice. It enables, and sometimes I wonder if this is the most important thing that the Buddhist tradition has to offer right now, the bringing together of the two, the personal and, and the social, that enables us to act in the world in a way that would otherwise be incredibly frustrating. Why should I work so hard and I don't know, you know, it's, so little happens. It seems like we never go anywhere. You know, what's built into our practice is our engagement in the world is our gift to the world. We don't know what's going to become of that gift. We have no idea, but there's a kind of fundamental faith, a, a kind of fundamental, that's my role. There's an old Jewish saying, uh, um, maybe it's in the Talmud, you know, uh, it is not given us to see the end of, of, of our work, but neither are we free to, to put it down. You know, it's like we're, each of us is part of this greater process and maybe the other thing to emphasize is that, you know, when, when we do this, um, some, something very powerful happens. It's as if we plug into, I don't know if it's, if you want to call it greater potentialities or abilities within ourselves, but, but, it's, but it's like this, this, this way of acting in the world, doing the best we can, not knowing what's going to come of it doing the best we can anyway, that, that kind of resonates with something deeper, something deeper in the cosmos, in the universe. And, and sometimes it's amazing the things that happen. I'm not saying that very well, but, but there's something very powerful that is associated with, with that kind of engagement. Yeah. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Anyone uh, from the, uh, the live group here who would uh, raise your hand? Now is your chance. Dizon. Dizon's our artist uh, from Canada. Thank you so very much. Uh, you, you, you already kind of addressed my question. You, you seem to present earlier a kind of either-or situation, right? Either we, you know, face the wall and, and mm. uh, experience uh, no dukkha, mm. or, or we engage the world and are disturbed. And uh, and I, I can't avoid the word transcendent, although I'm not implying some kind of mm-hmm. other. Right? Right. But there is that transcendent fearlessness, right? Uh, I, I think that you know I'm just more effective and helpful with when I'm not disturbed and fearful. 
so there's this like a uh, you know, Jundo refers to it as, as, as kind of like having your cake and eating it too, or has to. Mm. It's like you, right in the thick of it, there is also that transcendent, for lack of a better word, peace, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, could you speak a little bit about that? Uh, you have well, just done so. Well, uh, it, it, what you say about transcendence is important, that it can be understood more metaphorically than some other kind of reality, right? And, and again, the whole point about understanding this world as a construction means that, like Nagarjuna says, right? Uh, th- basically, there's other ways of experiencing this world. Or he, he doesn't say that, but he sort of implies it with, with, with his approach, right? Yeah. Um, Hopefully what I just said does does speak to that a little bit, that, that we're not being encouraged to um, dualize between those two. But, but, but I think what's really important now, may, maybe we can say it this way, instead of thinking of social and ecological engagement as something that, oh, well, I've got to do it because the world's in a bad shape, but it's a really, dis- it's a distraction from my personal practice, you know, facing the wall and why, you know, I just wish all that stuff wasn't there. And if I could just, um, if I could just meditate a lot more and not have to worry about that, how much better that would be. Um, I, I think what we're moving toward is, is the deeper realization that um, engagement in the world is just as essential part of our spiritual practice as what's happening when we're meditating on the cushion seeing those as the two sides of practice, that is to say, practice in the sense of, of what's transformative. Um, and one way to say that, I think, is, you know, when, when someone has a kensho, there's like this, this little opening, and it, it, it's a pretty brief or shallow or just, just a first glimpse, first taste of, of this other way of experiencing. Um, but that doesn't in and of itself get rid of our deep-rooted, self-preoccupied habits and tendencies, right? I mean, I'm still, if I still had a problem with greed, that's not going to completely automatically disappear just because of that experience. And, and I think that helps us understand the bodhisattva path in, in a different light, in the sense that, okay, when I'm out there, engaged in the world, I'm in the process of engaging. What's happening is those deep-rooted, self-centered habits are being transformed. It's not as though they're transformed just because I'm doing zazen on the cushion, but when I'm actually out there and I'm making the decision, it's like I'm not just totally self-preoccupied in the old or the usual way, but I'm actually transforming my motivations by being engaged. And I'm realizing more, and, and this is also, it's like, how to say it? Um, it? It's one thing to have a kensho and realize that I'm not in here separate from the rest of the world out there. But what does it mean to live in a way that fully manifests that realization? And it means to transform my motivation. So I'm not motivated by the three poisons, greed, ill will, delusion. I'm motivated by generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And how do you do that? Well, you're only going to do that 
not just that's not just something that happens because you think of it in your head. You do it because you're out there actually working with other people to improve the situation, you see, socially and ecologically. So what I'm really pointing at is who is the one that the that the that the uh, bodhisattva or the ecosattva, who is the one that's benefiting the most from his or her activity? And what I'm trying to say is, it turns out it's that bodhisattva or ecosattva herself, because in the process of doing that, she is reconstructing her sense of self in terms of transforming motivation. She's learning to live in a different, more non-dual way in the world. So thinking that somehow this is a distraction from our practice and our practice is what's really going on when we're sitting on the cushion. No, that's an essential part of it. And, you know, the world is calling on us to incorporate that and to understand that as, as an essential part of our practice. Does this make any sense? Thank you. Uh, we, we have a question uh, from sure. home, from uh, Jakuden. It's actually very detailed, so I'm going to take the liberty of forwarding it to you later. Okay, but I sure. just want to read you uh, one point, which is a kind yeah. of uh, the, the mirror of what you just said. Uh, I have been trying to understand the point of view of the other side politically in the United States. I guess she means some conservative, more mm -hmm. conservative. Sure. Right. How would you explain your views to an individual whose immediate income for food and shelter comes from a job in an environmental, environmentally destructive industry? These types of individuals exist in large numbers and are currently feeling the large, uh, helping the, are currently helping the large corporations thrive, and the environmental damage to continue. Mm -hmm. How do you reach those people? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, in, in that particular case, uh, I think that um, th there is a kind of structural solution in the sense that what we're hearing a lot is that there's more jobs to be gained from greening our energy than are going to be lost. It's like the whole shift to solar and wind power. There's, there's a huge number of what I'm told are relatively high paying jobs that that, that, that can encourage. So, you know, it's, it's not simply a matter of, of, of sacrificing, but transforming. And now that of course is, isn't something that I'm going to, help with individually very much. It's like, I don't, I'm not part of the government. I don't have that expertise. But the point is that there's, that there's that potential that so often environmental destruction is sold to us as that's the only way to get the jobs. And I, and I think that's just deception on the part of uh, fossil fuel corporations and the people who profit from what they're doing now, in, in reality, my, my sense, my understanding from what I read is that shifting to renewables will, in fact, be far better. Um, there, there was something else I wanted to, to, to say about that. And, and, and it's, it, it's basically this. Um, when we get into these kinds of particulars, I don't think that Buddhism gives us the answers, right? So... All the Buddhist traditions are pre-modern. The Buddha uh, didn't have a ecological crisis of the sort that we're having. He didn't know anything about climate change, da-da-da-da. Um, and so it's not surprising that we can't go back to Buddhist teachings and find out what we should specifically do. We have this Ecodharma group here in Boulder. People do different things. You know, one of us is a um, retired banker. He has this marvelous ability, this 
to actually talk to Republicans, really important, you know, and he works for um, um, trying to promote a carbon tax, which could be really important. Uh, another person, Jeff, is very good on carbon footprint. When my wife and I bought this house, he helped us do an energy audit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm a member of 350.org. I'm working to try to get my college to divest its endowment from fossil fuels. You know, I mean, it's like there's a lot of different things we can and should be doing. And I don't think Buddhism tells us do this or do that or there's a simple solution. But what the Buddhist tradition has to offer is not the what but the how. And that's the idea of the Bodhisattva path, you know. So specifics Buddhism is pretty short on. We still have the challenge of trying to sort that out for ourselves. But the Buddhist tradition has so much to offer when it comes to actually integrating that, integrating those solutions into how we actually pursue them. Uh, David's been extremely generous with his time. So I just want to make this perhaps about the last question. This is your chance, guys. Raise your hand if you got one. Otherwise, I'm going to take it. Okay, well, all right. Here's my question for you, David. Um, over the years, I have my own political beliefs, believe me. I'm, boy, do I have them. And, uh, but I have tried not to impose them on my sangha. And as a matter of fact, I have tried to make a place. I realize that we have conservative members and we have some NRA members and we have some folks who are, you know, uh, latte drinking, BMW riding, you know, liberals like many of the Sangha, but I've got other folks who are actually anti-abortion because they feel it's killing. And, I, and I've said, I want to make a Sangha that welcomes conservative people too. Right. right. How do you do this in this day and age? What do you advise? Hmm. Great question. You know, one of my teachers, Robert Aiken, who I, you know, dearly love, I mean, he was sometime, I mean, he, his own views were pretty, uh, um, pretty pretty um, engaged and I don't know what what do we progressive I think he was probably a a socialist in the thirties certainly and and he was sometimes criticized for uh, sort of you know pushing the sangha in that direction it it's it's a delicate issue uh, and I think it's not something that you can have a kind of cookie cutter answer that's going to work in every sangha. I think it depends a lot on the dynamics of the sangha and the teacher. But the general guideline that I think is, is sort of a good way to start out is that there should be a distinction made between the individual practice that's going on in the dojo or the zendo, you know, where you are meditating, maybe you're working on koans or you're doing shikantaza or whatever. I think that that should not be confused with the social engagement. I've just argued a, not, a, a couple of minutes ago that they should be brought together, but nonetheless, in terms of how we address those kinds of situations, I think it's important for people to sit regardless, to, to feel welcome and embraced regardless of their political views or socioeconomic status. And then, it's also important, I believe, that those who do have the kind of progressive concern for social justice and ecological sustainability, I think it's really important for, their be, for, their to, for them to have a way to meet, to talk, and to work, and to be active together. So maybe you can talk about two overlapping spheres, 
but my sense is that people shouldn't be pushed from one into the other, that that's something that should naturally happen as they deepen in the practice. Now, does it always happen? That, that, that's a good question. What do you think? I mean, I'd be interested in your response, what, whether that fits in with what you're doing and what do you think? I've, I've been trying to keep people on the, big picture. And I have tried to get people to understand that I believe a bodhisattva should make sure that everyone in this world to the possibility, best possibility has food and good housing and medical care and education. Mm -hmm. And we need to protect the environment. But I, on the ground level, I'm trying to keep people from not making our place a place to debate and fight about small policy issues. And I'm trying to keep them on the big picture. So far it's working. Uh, you know, some of the things you said today, I have to reflect on too. So I just want to say, um, I guess we should close here and let you go. Um, I'm, I'm fine. But uh, other people, you know, we're, we're, we're closing in on two hours. I mean, it's not a problem for me, but. Uh, okay. I'll give anyone here one last chance. Let me just, anyone, this is it. Let me just check it home. Okay. I'll forward these to you. Hmm. David. Uh, next time uh, you're in Japan, uh, please uh, stop back here. I'm 100 miles from Fukushima and uh, as the crow flies. So uh, I'll take you up there and you can look around. Yeah, actually, and, I, um, I would be interested in that. Thank you. Yeah, I do Thank have some I can get you to work. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> thank, um, thank you, Jundo, for this uh, invitation. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all our participants here at home. And... Um, I will uh, be seeing you around the Sangha. David, you're welcome here anytime, and I appreciate it. Oh, and, and I uh, do just mention again, Ecodharma Center, please check it out online. Do not forget, we're going to put you over the top on your funding here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, Good night everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.